0: Well, we've uh, just started this brand new series. I say brand new. It's kind of three or four weeks in now, but it feels brand new. uh, Entitled, I Believe in God, But... And the basic thinking behind it is that there's a bit of a gap in all of our lives between what we say we believe and what tends to be our day-to-day practice. And so what we're trying to do over the next couple of months is try and close that gap ever so slightly so that we actually live more and more in the good of what we say we believe. So if you've been around for the last few weeks, uh, we know you'll know we started off by talking about the fact we're actually adopted as children into God's family and uh, our behavior flows from who we are. We need to start off by understanding the, the wonderful reality of our identity in God's family. When we went to look on uh, about the whole subject of uh, prayer how it's not a heavy thing, it's not a mere dutiful thing, again it flows from understanding who we are and the relationships that God has opened up for us with him. Last time uh, we looked at the subject of the church and what it means to be a part of God's plan for all of creation, for all of history, part of the church today. And in the next few weeks uh, we're going to be dealing with subjects like I believe in God but I don't talk about him, uh, I believe in God but what's my is mine. Uh, I believe in God, but I really struggle to forgive you. Uh, I believe in God, but my life is still really riddled with worry and anxiety. That's what's to come. But what I want to touch on this morning is how all of this relates to our attitude towards sex and sexuality. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, this is just really unsuitable subject matter to be talked about in the church. Here's my concern. I think it's exactly because these things are so rarely talked about in the context of the church that we can en- end up allowing our godless culture to set the agenda and dictate what we think and what we believe on this subject. Really, what I want to do today is redress the balance. I want us to see things from God's perspective. So, if you've got a Bible with you, maybe you could turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're finding it, here's the context. Corinth was this wild, reckless, heaving commercial city that was booming with all kinds of economic activity. It was also the sex capital of the ancient world. Almost every imaginable form of sexual deviance was there to be found in Corinth and slap bang right in the middle of all of these alternative lifestyles was the Corinthian church. It was a pretty young church By all accounts, it was growing fast. It was full of brand new Christians who still had a whole lot of thinking that was shaped and moulded by the culture that they were living in. And so Paul writes to them to sort out some of their wrong thinking. And in the passage that we're going to be focusing in on this morning, Paul is specifically picking up on some of their objections about Christian teaching on sex, and he takes the time to spell out why their thinking and their arguments are flawed. Four main arguments he deals with here in this passage, and as we're going to find out, they're pretty similar to the objections and the arguments that people raise today. Here's the first one. I can do whatever I want, I can do whatever I want. This is what the Corinthians were saying. Verse 12, everything is permissible for me. Anyone here ever been misunderstood by anyone? I don't don't know, loads of you. I don't know, Maybe you just didn't understand the question, which is why you didn't put your hand up. But uh, maybe you you gave someone some instructions, a little bit of freedom, but then they go way beyond what you originally intended. That's what was happening in Corinth. Paul had been badly misunderstood. He he taught the Corinthians that there's tremendous freedom in Christ. He'd made it crystal clear that they were no longer under the burden and expectation of the Old Testament law. He'd spelt out how it is by grace that they've been saved through faith, not a result of their effort, not a result of their works. He'd made it clear that where there is sin, there is much more grace. It abounds. He, he'd explained how the righteousness, the sinlessness, the purity of Christ is freely given to us as a gift. We cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. It's just ours. He'd drilled into them the fact that we don't have to earn stuff from God by obeying laws and trying to be good enough. We're made good enough by virtue of being in Christ. Now, faced with this message, the Corinthians concluded that the way they behaved didn't really matter. I mean, if we're not under law and we know that God will forgive us anyway, can't we just do whatever we want? Everything is permissible. Now, if you think about it, it's actually a pretty warped way of thinking. It'd be like me turning to Helen on our honeymoon I know a lot can change in 16 years. Uh, uh, For those who are listening on the podcast, the raucous laughter is actually a photograph of, uh, yeah, that shows me in a a better light. Uh, It'd be like me turning to Helen on our honeymoon, checking that she meant her vows, that she promised she'd never leave me, she was serious about that. And when she said, yeah, of course that's what I meant, of course that's what I'm committing to, it'd be like me then going out and conducting a whole string of affairs. I mean, it's pretty twisted. I think we'd all agree that you can't take people for granted like that. You can't presume that you can go out and abuse relationships in that way and and everything will still be okay. I mean, if I behaved like that, Helen would have been well within her rights to walk away from me there and then. She could legitimately argue that I'd completely misunderstood what it meant to be married. Therefore, we probably weren't properly married in the first place. And it's the same with us and God. If we see Christianity as merely a means of doing whatever we want with the guarantee of being forgiven and getting into heaven in the end, we've completely misunderstood. For starters, I guess we've misunderstood what it means for God to be holy. I mean, mess with Him at your peril. But we've also misunderstood the nature of the relationship that he wants us to enjoy with him. To abuse the relationship, to push the boundaries of what we can get away with, is missing the point completely. God has chosen us to enjoy such incredible love and acceptance and faithfulness and peace and joy and hope in the context of walking through life with him that the thought of kind of pushing the boundaries and trying to get away with stuff it it wouldn't even occur to us but warped and twisted as this way of thinking is it's pretty prevalent prevalent nowadays You, you, you hear it all the time if it's legal then what's the problem but we're just two consenting adults wanting a bit of fun. What's wrong with that? We're, we're not breaking any laws. Paul's response is very simple. Verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Paul's saying it might not be against the law, technically speaking, but that doesn't mean it's good for you. Take McDonald's, for example eating supersized meals three times a day is lawful. There is, as far as I'm aware, no law against it. But it's certainly not beneficial. It's certainly not good for you. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. It's his first point. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean it's beneficial, doesn't mean it's a good thing for you. But he kind of knows how the Corinthians are wired. He kind of anticipates their response. He anticipates them saying, well, everything is permissible for me. We're, we're just having some fun. We're, we're free to do whatever we want. And so he adds, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's saying, you say you're free? Really, you're not free at all you're out of control, you cannot stop yourselves, it's like you are slaves to something, you're being mastered by it. Now, those of you who are porn addicts, those of you who maybe struggle to stop sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, those of you who can't stop going from one troubled relationship to another, you have first-hand experience of what Paul is talking about here. You really aren't free. It's like you're stuck in a rut that you cannot get out of. You might celebrate your lifestyle, you might say you can do what you want, that you're free, but inside, if you're being honest, you know you're not free. And although you might not be breaking the law of the land, what you're doing isn't doing you any good at all. Listen, those who are free have self-control. Those who are free have the power to say no. Those who are free aren't compelled to disobey God. I can do whatever I want. It's a myth. It's a flawed argument. Here's the second argument you've heard this one before as well, it's a natural desire so really I shouldn't repress it. Verse 13, Paul says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food but God will destroy them both. Now that might sound a bit of an odd thing to say, How does this fit with the subject? It might not seem like it on the surface but this is such a common argument today. Here's how it plays out in our context. The stomach was created for food just as our sexual organs were created for sex. So let's start with the stomach. Our stomach has an appetite for food. So what do you do? You feed it. That's okay, that's just human, that's natural. Similarly, our body has an inbuilt appetite for sex. So what do you do? I mean, it's obvious, if you have a strong sex drive you go out and have sex. I mean, it's okay, you, you don't need to worry about it. We're, we're only being human. If you get hungry, you eat. If you feel aroused, you have sex. They're, they're both natural, physical urges that need to be satisfied. And anyway, the body's wasting away. One day it will be no more. So, so what does it really matter? Now, some of you will be thinking, oh, that, that sounds great, I didn't expect to hear this message in the church today. But unrestricted freedom with no impact on our soul no eternal consequences it sounds great but it's not reality paul's response unsurprisingly is pretty strong and is pretty direct your body was not ultimately made for sex it was made for jesus second half of verse 13 the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body. Listen, we are so much more than mere highly evolved animals. We are image bearers of God himself. We were created with tremendous dignity. We were made in the image of of God. We were made to reflect God's glory. And as Paul goes on to say, those bodies that the Corinthians say are so temporary are one day going to be raised by God's power. Verse 13, by his power God raised the Lord from the dead, he will raise us also. Do you see, there's there's this whole eternal aspect going on here. What we do with our bodies now is going to have eternal consequences for us. And so Paul says, be very careful how you live. Be very careful how you use your body. Flawed argument number two, it's a natural desire, so I shouldn't repress it. It's a myth. Next argument is even more popular today. Here's how it goes. It doesn't affect anyone else. So it's really none of your business whether I sleep with other people or not. It doesn't affect anyone else. Now, the Corinthian church had bought into this one big time. Right, right in the centre of Corinth was this huge temple of the goddess Aphrodite with a thousand priestesses who were effectively prostitutes. People would go there in the name of worship and engage in all kinds of sexual activity. It was just a dumb thing, it's what you do on a Friday night and it seems that people from the church saw no reason why they shouldn't join in as well. I want you to have a listen to Paul's response, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Here's what Paul's doing. He's reminding the Corinthians and us, I guess, that whatever you're, whenever you're sexually intimate with someone else you become one with them. It's like there's just this holy and mysterious and deep and profound bonding that takes place. That's the way God designed it, that was His intention from the very beginning. If you remember right back in Genesis 2 verse 24, He sets it out as clearly as He can. He says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Try and illustrate this for you. Some of you have been around for a while. You, you you may have seen this before. I want you to imagine. In fact, you don't need to imagine. I have them in front of me. I want you to look at these two pieces uh, of card. Imagine these two pieces of card being stuck together. They're, they're pushed together for, from top to bottom. They're firmly in place. Here's one I prepared earlier. In fact. Firmly in place, kind of bonded, uh, immovable, stuck together. They're holding. They're united as one. I want you to try and imagine now them being torn apart, just kind of slowly ripped until they are torn and pulled apart. And then they're stuck together again and pulled apart, and then stuck and pulled apart. And wasn't that happening so many times that in the end all that's left is just this kind of tattered mess that's kind of, uh, pretty kind of messed up and weakened and worn and badly damaged. It, it's like it's just falling apart. That, that is what happens when you have multiple sexual partners. Not realising that sex affects other people is the height of delusion and selfishness. If you have sex with someone you become one flesh with them. It's not a casual thing. It's like something deep inside is being united with another person. i tell you, the more partners you have The more torn up inside you're going to be. That's why it's God's design for a man and a woman to commit to one another in marriage, become one and stay together. I don't know how to say this any other way. If you take the line that your sex life doesn't affect anyone else, you are deceived. I'll just try and play this out for you. If you aren't married, at the very least, this affects you, the person you're sleeping with, your potential future husband or wife, their potential future husband or wife. And the argument that, well, you're planning to get married anyway, well, that doesn't cut it either. If you think about it, you are subtly sowing the message that sex outside of marriage is fine, is okay, it doesn't matter. And just ask yourself is that really the message that you would want your future husband or wife believing? When you're married, would you want them living that way? Sex outside of marriage always, always. Affects other people than you, and most crucially, it affects Jesus. Paul says here, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? He's saying, If you're a believer, you're in Christ, and Christ is in you. Now, that is just a phenomenal truth. I want you to let it sink in. If you are facing a difficult situation today, Maybe you're unsure whether you can overcome a particular temptation, maybe you're uncertain even of your salvation. The truth is, if you believe in Christ, you are in Him and He is in you. That is great news, but it's not such good news if you're masturbating or getting sexually active with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or looking at pornography you see, you're never alone. Jesus is always with you. So if you think about it, in some way, you are implicating him in whatever you're involved with. It's not that you are making him sin, that's not what I'm saying, but at the very least, you are exposing him to what you're doing. Really, you're acting as though you couldn't care less what he thinks, It's as though you're dragging his name through the dirt. So let me try and make this really practical. Here's a helpful question that you can ask yourself. Would you do it if Jesus was right there in the room with you? If not, don't do it. Because the reality, he is. He is right there in the room with you. I mean, imagine the dialogue we'd have with people if we took this seriously. Do you want to have sex with me? No! Why not? Because Jesus is here, just get away from me! I mean, Paul's counsel couldn't be more straightforward. He simply says, flee sexual immorality. And let me be as clear as I can on this. Sexual immorality is all sexual activity that isn't with your heterosexual spouse. But I don't have a spouse, It's pretty clear then, you can't have sex, well, what about other things, what, what can we do, where's the line, there is no line, don't do anything, then get married and do it all, it's easy, there, there is no line, it's nothing, then it's everything, that's it, but uh, 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 can't, can we just experiment a bit, I mean just, just go a bit of the way, well, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, don't experiment with it. Don't play around the edges of it. Don't toy with it. Flee from it. In fact, a truer rendition of the original text here would be keep on fleeing. It's like flee, 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 and keep on fleeing. And flee some more on top of that. Yeah, but everyone else is sexually active in my school. I mean, it's normal these days to have multiple sexual partners. Most couples nowadays live together before they get married. I mean, how will we ever know if we're compatible? The divorce is through. We're, we're mature, consenting adults. We're we're going through the marriage. Surely we can live together. I mean, look at the world we live in. Times have changed. Things have moved on. It's just channel surfing. Don't get the really bad stuff. Feels so good. It, it must be right. If I don't get involved with him sexually, he'll leave me. And anyway, this whole idea of sexual purity and holiness, it's old-fashioned, it's rigid, it's just really legalistic, it's heavy. Now look, I'm trying to be as reasonable as I can on this one. But the bottom line is, if you are a Christian here today you've really got no other option. I mean, in becoming a Christian, you made it clear that Jesus is Lord over your whole life. You told him that you care more about him than about anything else, which means you steer steer clear of sexual sin. Or let me put it this way, if you care more about your sexual gratification than you do about Jesus, then that has effectively become your God. And if that is your position today, you probably don't need me to tell you that you're on slightly dangerous ground. If that's, in all honesty, where you find yourself today, flee, flee, and flee some more. Keep on fleeing for all your worth. So can we just get clear on this? whenever temptation comes knocking, and it will, whenever you find yourself rationalizing, or justifying, or skirting around the issue, won't you resolve right now, today, that you will wake up to what you're doing, you will stop it, and you will flee in another direction, because I tell you, it is incredibly difficult making that call when your hormones are raging inside you, so make it now. In the cold light of day, resolve now how you're going to act then. It doesn't affect anyone else. It's a lie. It's a myth. Fourth and final argument, which I think has brought with it some pretty tragic consequences in the whole Western world over the last generation, is the whole, it's my body argument. It's like most people nowadays think that because their body is theirs, it belongs to them, they are free to do with it what they want. Now, for many years, there was many men who believed that they were entitled to sleep with whoever they liked to never suffer any consequences. But then, in the 1960s, women decided that they wanted the same right of sex without consequences and abortion was legalised. And since then, 6 million babies have been aborted legally just in the United Kingdom. Think about that, 6 million. That's six times the population of Birmingham. Just last year, 76% of those abortions were merely down to choice or convenience. No medical reasons at all. The main argument for it, it's my body, I can do what I like. Paul's answer to the it's my body line of argument is simply this, no it's not. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. He's saying, your body is a temple. It's a phrase that's pretty much in vogue nowadays. It communicates something of the value of our body and the need to take care of it and the need for healthy diet and exercise and so on. Now, all of that's important but Paul is saying something way more profound than that here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're a Christian, your body is God's temple. God lives in you. It's sacred. It's holy. He's saying, your body is not your own anymore. It belongs to God. He owns it. I mean, you're thinking, whoa, hold on a moment. I, mean, I don't like the sound of that. And there lies the problem. The reason why we can hear teaching on sexual purity, and then go away and completely ignore it, is we think it's all about us. We're the centre of the universe, we own ourselves. Admit it, we live in a world where the basic assumption is, is all about me. Think about it, iPod, iPhone, iPad, iTunes, This, this whole eye-centred obsession just invades our minds and begins to distort our thinking. It assaults and grabs at our heart. It begins to twist relationships. It insidiously seeps into the church, creating conflict and strife, destroying unity. And saddest of all, if we forget that we are not our own and we say, well no, it's all about me, what happens is we forget who we are and who we are becoming. It's as though we begin to live a much smaller, cramped story that's really just all about us. As C.S. Lewis once famously observed, live this way, we end up being far too easily satisfied. It's as though we begin to settle to play in a, a small, muddy puddle, when there is a vast ocean just around the corner, and yet if we listen, it's like there's this shout from the heavens that's calling us, reminding us that we're citizens of another world, that there is something way more significant going on, that we are sons and daughters of none other than God himself. We're not our own, we belong to him that's not bad news. Far from it. It's the greatest news imaginable. And so before we close, I want to just remind you how this came about. Paul says you were bought at a price. Now, Paul doesn't need to elaborate on this. Just these words would have conjured up a pretty graphic image in the Corinthians' minds. They'd have pictured a wooden platform with a human being standing on the platform with a price hanging around their neck. And all of a sudden, a buyer puts up his hand and says, he'll pay the price demanded. and a transaction takes place. Ownership is transferred. But Paul's talking about slavery here. He's using it as an illustration of our position as Christians. He's referring to how Jesus... God's very own Son paid the price to purchase us. Not a monetary price. The price around our neck was death. We were controlled by sin. If you like, we were as guilty as sin. And the punishment for all of that is death. And yet, knowing precisely what it would cost, Jesus stepped up and paid the price to set us free dying literally dying in our place on the cross that that price was paid once and for all by his blood and now we're his we belong to him listen that you are not your own is not a bad thing that you are not your own is not a bad thing because you are now God's you've been created and called you've been adopted and chosen You've been redeemed, you've been rescued, you've been forgiven, you've been healed, you've been set free, You're, you're his. Poor saying, you're not your own. You're not your own. Jesus paid the highest price imaginable to redeem you, to rescue you from the control of sin and that guilty sentence that was hanging over your head. Therefore, honour God with your body. Honour God with your body. It seems pretty reasonable to me in view of God's mercy. It's not just my body I want to give to God. I I want to give Him everything, my time, my money, my hopes, my dreams, absolutely everything. And in, in light of the lengths He's gone to for me, I'm happy to trust that He wants the best for me and so if he says no sexual activity outside of marriage, I might not always want to go along with that, especially when those hormones are raging inside of me but I'm going to do it his way. Paul writes in Romans 6, verses 12 and 13, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. Won't you do that? won't you offer your body to God? Won't you say, every part of my body is for your glory. I'm going to honour you with how I use it. God, I want you to feel at home in me. That's what you want. I'm going to invite you to stand right now you may already be living this way, you you may be honouring God with your body, you can stand anyway. You might be single, you you might be in a relationship, you might be married, if you want to honour God with your body, you can stand. Or or standing right now might mark a decisive change in your attitude towards sex, it it might signal a dramatic change in your behaviour from this point on. Won't you have the courage to stand as well. If you want to apply this message, if you want to say to God, yeah, I'm all yours, would you stand and we're going to (laughs) pray. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold out your hands in front of you and I'll tell you why. First of all, it's a sign of submission and openness to God. It's a way of acting out to Him that I'm all yours. It's also a statement of faith. The Bible says that only those with clean hands and a pure heart can approach God. And I'm guessing some of you might not feel very clean right now you may feel like you are carrying some stains at the moment you, you might feel a bit dirty right now god is going to come to you with forgiveness and grace to cleanse you from your sin that, that that's why holding your hands out is a statement of faith it's saying yeah I I come with clean hands before you. I trust your ability to cleanse me, to forgive me. I don't know. Maybe you're ahead of day. You've been betrayed by someone. Maybe someone has taken advantage of you. Maybe you feel like you've been used. That's you... God is specifically going to come to you, meet with you right now. I want you to know that there is genuine healing and wholeness that he can bring for you. God knows what you've been through. He's going to come close. He cares. Those wounds that you feel like you carry, those scars... You feel a bit kind of ripped up inside. He can mend you. He can heal you. Heavenly Father, would you do that right now? Where for some, this message has just been painful. There are people who feel like they've been a victim. I want to pray that you would set them free from their past Set them free from those memories that haunt them, those nightmares that trouble them. Those things from the past that prevent them from looking forward with hope. Father, would you come tenderly? Would you come with healing? Would you come with hope? Would you come with peace deep inside? I don't know, maybe you're in a relationship that even now is going beyond the boundaries sexually. I want to give you an opportunity to repent right now, to resolve to stop, to seek God's forgiveness. And again, he's here with grace, but the deal is if we confess our sins, he forgives. It would be remiss of me not to give you an opportunity to do that right now, just quietly in your mind. There are things you know you need to confess to him. Seek him for forgiveness. Do it now. Just quiet in your mind.